Welcome to the CEC Report. It's the 23rd of February. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined today by CEC Leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. So, Craig, this week we want to welcome viewers to the CEC Report from the Aurora channel on Foxtel. This is their first episode that'll be broadcast um, for the foreseeable future, hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, just for the benefit of Aurora viewers, if you haven't watched this program before, the CEC Report is the weekly broadcast of the Citizens Electoral Council, which is an independent political party that's been federally registered in Australia for, oh, getting close to 30 years now, Craig. That's about right. You're all the founder of the CEC back in 1988. Mm -hmm. um, and in that time, we've been fighting for the economic sovereignty of Australia. We've been fighting against the encroachment on our economy by the powers of Wall Street and the City of London that have destroyed the structures that were set up in the economy, especially by the old Labor Party, to preserve what we call the common good, to make sure that you know, everybody did get a fair go in the economy. That's all been privatised and deregulated to death, and we've been fighting that the whole way. Um, and as you watch that program, you, we will, the, the whole purpose of this program is to update people on our fight as much as anything. We give information, we try and fight for the truth here, but it's, it's about how we're fighting the, the, um, the policies that are causing us the most damage and for positive policies as well. And Robbie, we always back up what we say in writing. Uh, we have the CEC's uh, Australian Alert Service, which is available for anyone to call in on and get uh, on our 1800 number. In that, uh, in that journal, you'll find all the background material to what we talk about so that uh, if you want to follow it up, it's all there. And that's a standard offer. Any week you see something on the CEC report you want more information on, um, call in on our 1-800 number and order yourself a copy. You can follow us on the internet, on our website, which we'll put on the screen. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter at CEC Australia. You can even follow me on Twitter at Robbie Barwick. Um, there's lots of information sources where you can follow the, the, the information we put out. But this particular program is a service that we provide Australia-wide and on YouTube. And so we also encourage TV viewers to subscribe to us on YouTube. It, subscribing is free, just click the button and you'll get the CEC reports as soon as they're produced. But that said, Craig, again, welcome to Aurora viewers. Let's get into it. In this week's CEC report, economic Armageddon for Australia. And secondly, orchestrators of the Ukraine coup now out to overthrow Donald Trump. So first, Craig, economic Armageddon for Australia. And we're going to have that in quote marks because it's not our quote. I love it. <laughs> I mean, not to horrify people, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a scary quote. But this was the headline of news.com.au um, on the weekend. This is not fake news this time. It's not fake. No, no, that's right. It's not fake news. This is, and we know it's not fake news because what they've done is they've reported the warnings of a former government, government economics advisor, John Adams, who used to work for Senator Arthur Sinodinus. And they've highlighted seven disturbing signs, they call them, that the global economy is on the brink of a crash, which spells economic Armageddon for Australia. And why we know they're not, it's not fake news is because these seven signs are things that we and this program for many years have been screaming about. And we published it in a New Citizen newspaper, Robbie, this, not the same title, but the same idea. Because exactly. you only have to look at the physical collapse of manufacturing, of, of family farmers and so forth in our country and you get to see some of the truth behind these figures. Alright, so what we're going to do is go through those signs because they do speak for themselves and news.com.au has kindly provided graphs which we'll put up on the screen. 
The first sign, Craig, is Australia's record household debt. 187%, Robbie, of, of income goes to paying off debt. And Incredible. This, this has only been seen a few other times in our history, some just before the Great Depression, for instance. This is the worst in the world, by the way, right? It's not just a, it's not just a, um, something that happens everywhere. No, no, this is the worst in the world. And with that level of debt, house, it means households are completely stretched. And what happens is, I tend to follow like, the, 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 um, the thought processes of standard economists. And they don't get statistically, their statistics tell them that Australia's economy is fine. And they keep, one, they keep saying things like, why are Australians all so upset politically when the economy is doing great? Because <laughs> they don't actually get the burden of the cost of living that is based on this debt, actually, even, even at the record low interest rates we have. Um, the second sign is Australia's record net foreign debt. And you can look there how it has climbed from 35% of GDP in 1991 to now 60% of GDP. And that's net foreign debt. That's over a trillion dollars now. It's over a trillion so dollars. What you're talking about there is the collapse of the physical economy, whereby Australia can't pay its debts anymore. Yeah, we're no. not paying our way. That's right. And the collapse of manufacturing is a classic example, the fact that we're only totally reliant on exporting raw materials, there's no value adding going on. All of these other sorts of uh, economic processes that we haven't invested in, which means we're not creating the wealth necessary to be able to fund ourselves. And let me again tell you how economists think, Craig, because in, in around when Paul Keating famously said this is the recession we had to have, what he meant by that was for the 70s and 80s, Australia had high inflation, right? And the recession broke the back of that inflation because we came out in the back of that with low inflation. But what most people didn't realise, the actual driver of the low inflation was tariff cuts because those tariff cuts had allowed a flood of cheap imports in from Asia and all of a sudden, a lot of the daily things we're buying are much cheaper, right? So that's great for inflation. But this foreign debt shows you, because it's the same period, right? Mm that we haven't paid our way. Yes, we've got all this stuff coming in, but we're not actually affording it. We're, we're chalking it up on the um, credit card, right? And that's just the, the way it is. And these economists, again, they just, they're in a world of their own. They don't get how the real world actually works. Mm. Well, the, I mean, the, the way that this works is that we've actually borrowed the money from overseas in order to pay the debt. Yep. So <laughs> that means, that, as you say, cranking up the uh, the nation's credit card in order to pay for things that we aren't actually producing here ourselves. And we're not talking government debt, by the way. We're talking no, the no. nation's debt. Yeah. We're talking everything the private sector as well as government owes overseas. Mm -hmm. All right, Sec third sign, record low interest rates. Now, why this is a sign of economic Armageddon is not on, is not on the issue of interest rates per se, but when they're that low, where can they go? That's right, they lose control of that particular mechanism. Yep, and if you look at the, just look there at the 2008 period on the graph where they had gone down very sharply and then started to rise again, that rise um, caused a lot of trou troubles then in the property market and things like that, Craig, and um, a lot of panic in the system and the governments and the central banks right around the world actually then started saying, oh, we've got to, we've got to get this down lower and lower and lower. Because if it goes up high, those record debt levels are unsustainable, mm. right? And, and people will be crushed under them. All right. Fourth is the 
Australian housing bubble. And they've provided this very useful graph. And as someone who's, as you have, Craig, um, examined this question of the housing bubble very, very closely over a long period of time, I must admit that one aspect of it that had escaped me was what this graph shows. Because it shows that the volume of credit that banks lend into housing as a percentage of our overall economy, look what's happened to it in, since 1991. So in 1991, when everyone was had a house, right, at high interest rates, not everyone had a house, but a lot of people had a house, you could certainly save up and afford a house, right? So banks were lending money to people to buy houses in 1991 as well. Only 20% of the, the, the amount of credit going into housing was just 20% of our GDP. Much lower than the GDP then, by the way. Yeah. It is now getting close to 100% of our GDP is the equivalent of what banks are lending into the housing market. 1.7 trillion, roughly. This is huge. This is why we have prices like we do. Yes. It's not supply and demand. It is a bubble. Banks are lending into a bubble, whereas the euphoria and the irrational exuberance of the buyers that's keeping it, that's sustaining it, right? That, that is unsustainable. And those other factors like household debt and interest rates, if they go up, et cetera, it can all, it'll, will all come crashing down on the back of that. Um, the, 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 the remaining things is the, the article highlights the fifth sign is the significant increase in global debt, which has almost doubled since the 2008 crisis. Mm -hmm. Everyone's called the 2008 crisis a debt crisis. Well, now debt has almost doubled. So this, this, sustain, this servicing debt problem is an issue for the whole world. The sixth sign is major international asset bubbles because that's where that debt is globally. The same thing as in Australia with the property bubble. There's a bubble in the US stock market, for instance, Huge, right? Man. Massive bubble. And all this can, any bubble means the values are fictitious. So you pop it and it can just disappear. And if you've got your super in, the, in there, sorry, kiss it goodbye, right? That's the type of thing that can happen. And the seventh one, which to their credit, news.com.au put in there and so there's, um, uh, this economist, John Adams, is the global derivatives bubble. Now we're going to put on the screen um, a couple of graphs that we ran in this week's Australian Alert Service, Craig, where you've got uh, a very good one that, that compares, it's called financial WMDs, where the US money supply is $15 trillion, world GDP is $50 trillion, total value of world stocks and bond markets is $100 trillion, and derivatives is way over $500 trillion officially, and by good, credible, unofficial estimates, $1.2 quadrillion, $1,200 trillion, right? And all this is coming to a head to, to point to, we are very soon heading into a, as I said, economic Armageddon. So just quickly, Craig, what's the solution? Well, Robbie, none of this has been solved since the global financial crisis. We're campaigning throughout Australia and through our colleagues in the United States for a global Glass-Steagall. That means for a start, you separate out the banking system so that you have a strong commercial banking system with a boring day-to-day -day banking. Everyday like, banking. Everyday yep. banking, like taking in deposits and issuing loans and so forth. That's separated out completely from uh, the merchant investment banking, which was so engorged in the, uh, in the derivatives market and the speculative stuff. That's done legislatively. It's very simple to do, actually, but the consequences for the banks uh, is very large because they can no longer get their hands on the depositors' funds. Uh, and that, this is why they're so hysterical about it. Donald Trump said during his election campaign he supported a 21st century Glass-Steagall. So did uh, the, the Democrats at that particular Bernie time. Sanders. Bernie Sanders in particular. 
So this is a policy that, that is bubbling away. It needs major support in order to be able to really uh, bring it to the fore. Because we really need it before the next crash. That's correct. You can put these policies in before the next crash, you won't have the disaster that would unfold. But you also got two other policies, Robbie. First of all, you have to have national banking, whether you have a sovereign bank, like a national credit bank, as we say, which that then determines the credit for the nation. You take that out of the hands of the private bankers, and you can hear them gasping already, Robbie, about uh, that idea. And, sec and thirdly, you have to have go, go with large-scale, massive infrastructure projects with this credit in order to create lots and lots of high-paying, high, high quality jobs. And this is all can be done because you have a new geometry in the world today called the BRICS grouping of countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. It's all, in a sense, modelled around the idea of the win-win proposals of global economic development through President Xi Jinping. Cooperative, so cooperation infrastructure projects, things like that. Yeah, that, yeah, through, and I think China has different cooperative projects in about 120 countries. So you have a different actual paradigm in the world today that, that is shifting world policy, and that's what Australia has to go towards. Yeah. That's the solution. So that's a very good summary, Craig, um, but of course the devil's in the detail. This is the kind of thing you should call in and get a copy of our um, publication, the Australian Alert Service, for elaboration on exactly those types of policies. So let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Ukraine. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Orchestrators of Ukraine coup now out to overthrow Trump. And Craig, this week is the third anniversary of the coup that overthrew the elected government of Ukraine. Now, we put it that way. Viewers who are tuning in for the first time might think, well, I've never heard it put that way before, right? It was like some great thing. No, it wasn't. It was a violent neo-Nazi coup backed by the West, which we'll go through. The reason we're talking about it is because it's an anniversary and it's on its own right. But the same people who orchestrated that coup from the American side are now gunning to overthrow Donald Trump. And this, this is quite key. Why? Because Donald Trump as people will recognise, has been consistent on one thing throughout his whole campaign and since he's been president, he wants better relations with Russia, right? And so let's go through a bit of the history now. And I want to play some videos to just show people what this coup was actually like in um, Ukraine, how blatant a coup it actually was. Bit of background first. In 1991, the Soviet Union ended. The wall came down, right? Ukraine and Russia became different states. The Secretary of State of America, James Baker III, promised Gorbachev NATO would not expand, but NATO did expand, as you can see on the screen. We've animated that. What happened was the EU got into Ukraine and, and, and uh, encouraged Ukraine to get closer and closer to the European Union. And the President of Ukraine was about to sign an association agreement with the European Union. Russia offered to Ukraine to, to also join this thing called the Eurasian Union. And Russia said, you can join both, um, that's fine. But the EU said, no, 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 you can only join us, right? And when the president of Ukraine delayed signing this agreement, all these protesters took to the street in this center in Kiev, right? This, this center called the, the Maidan, and they called it the Euromaidan. They, start, they started these protests and it became a, um, uh, these protests became violent. So I've got a couple of clips to, to, pro to show first. This is the woman who's from the US State Department named Victoria Newland, who oversaw this operation. This is her just after the protests started back in America, admitting the US had invested $5 billion to achieve this outcome. 
Since Ukraine's independence in 1991, the United States has supported Ukrainians as they build democratic skills and institutions, as they promote civic participation and good governance, all of which are preconditions for Ukraine to achieve its European aspirations. We've invested over $5 billion to assist Ukraine in these and other goals that will ensure a secure and prosperous and democratic Ukraine. We now have, you can, we're going to put on the screen Victoria Newland, the same woman, handing out bread to the protesters in the Maidan. The US Embassy went there and said, we're, not, we're on your side, we're on your side. And people like John McCain turned up and you can see him posing with um, known neo-Nazis like the, the head of the Svoboda party, Tanya Bok, who will show up in a minute. Um, this is, the protests grew increasingly violent and... The, the, because this, these neo-Nazis came in and occupied buildings and start and took over the actual Maidan. Um, so everything escalated, Craig, and, and you can remember watching on TV at the time. In early February, a call between Victoria Newland and the US ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pryatt, was leaked. And that call showed, and I'm going to play it, that call showed that these two not only were orchestrating the coup, they were planning the next government of Ukraine. America decided who the government would be. Just listen. What do you think? Uh, I think we're in play. Um, the the uh, Klitschko piece is obviously the complicated electron here, um, especially the announcement of him as deputy prime minister. And, and you've seen some of my notes on the troubles in the marriage right now. So we're trying to get a read really fast on where he is on this stuff. But I think your argument to him, which you'll need to make, I think that's the next phone call we want to set up, is exactly the one you made to, to Yachts. And I, I'm glad you sort of put him on the spot on where he fits in this scenario. And I'm very glad he said what he said in response. Good. So uh, I don't think Cleach should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess... <laughs> You think, in terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking, in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Book and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. Um, I'm I, kinda, I, I, just, I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, I think, that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay. And then later in that same call, just to show this whole thing about it being about the EU and the protests that we want to be, the protesters wanted to join the EU. America knew it had nothing to do with the EU because look what the same Victoria Newland says about the EU. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it, and you know, fuck the EU. No, exactly, and I think. All right, so let's take a quick break, and we'll resume this after the break. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're discussing orchestrators of Ukraine coup now out to overthrow Trump. So what I've just showed with those clips, Craig, America orchestrated this. Here's what happened next. After that phone call we heard before the break where they're deciding who the next government would be, by the 18th of February, three, you know, it's the third, we're past the third anniversary of that now, it's, it got violent. People started to die. 25 people died on the 18th of February. On the 19th of February, the president and the main coup plotters 
struck a truce that on the 20th of February, snipers opened fire onto the Maidan and 100 people were killed. Um, and those killings were blamed on the president, mm -hmm. right? And you can see headlines on the screen. Uh, president Kudik killing his own people. He fled for his life, knowing, for instance, that, you know, just a few years earlier, Gaddafi had been overthrown by the Americans and they made sure he got killed. And when he got killed, Victoria Newland's boss, Hillary Clinton, said this. Yes, we came, we saw, <laughs> he died. <laughs> so knowing how this was going to work, the president fled and the coup plotter said, we've won, and the whole West cheered, yeah, yeah, we've won. And what they won was a neo-Nazi coup. Mm. And actually, that set up everything that happened next, including the downing of MH17, because the people in eastern Ukraine said, we're not going to accept, accept this neo-Nazi government in Kiev. They declared themselves autonomous republics. The war began, and of course, in that war zone, you know, all sorts of bad things happened. But one last clip. Um, the, a little while later, a month or so later, a, a call between the foreign minister of Estonia and a British bureaucrat at the UN named Catherine Ashton revealed that the key incident, which was these snipers that had been blamed on the president killing his own people, was actually not that at all. So listen to what he says. And second, what was quite disturbing, the same Olga told that, well, all the evidence shows uh, the people who were killed by snipers from both sides, among policemen and, and people from the streets, that they were the same snipers killing people from both sides. Well, that's, yeah. That's, so that, and then she also showed me some photos. Uh, she said that has medical doctor, she can, you know, say that it is the same, same handwriting, the yeah. same type of bullets. And it's really disturbing that now the new uh, new coalition that they don't want to investigate what exactly happened so that there is now stronger and stronger understanding that behind snipers they were it was not Yanukovych but it was somebody from the new coalition I think they do want to investigate I mean I didn't, I didn't pick that up that's interesting gosh yeah. so he's saying clearly that the snipers killed both sides the police and the protesters and in fact um, the people who had become the new government did not want that investigated. And he's saying they must have been the ones who did it, right? The mm -hmm. American-backed people did it. So this was the big lie about Ukraine that, is the, that you know, has been one of the things that, that Putin has been demonised for. So anyway, just quickly, General Flynn was forced to resign um, the other day. And the people who, the CIA who leaked the call that helped get him to resign, etc., um, they're in league with these people, these neocons in America, people like John McCain that are out, out to get Trump, right? Um, I'll show you a quick clip of John McCain talking about Trump. If you want to f preserve democracy as we know it, you have to have a free and many times adversarial press. And uh, without it, I'm afraid that we would lose so much of our individual liberties over time. That's how dictators get started. So they're setting it up. This guy's a dictator. You've got establishment media in the US and Ukraine, Craig, talking about Donald Trump's impeachment, and even his assassination. So here's the thing. Whatever people may think of Trump's policies, they must be aware that this is the apparatus pushing to overthrow him, and it's a blatant assault on democracy. He wants to establish relationship with Russia and China, Robert, which is going to overturn the last 40 years of policy. And so that's the big deal. So that's it for this week's show. Sorry I had to make it so quick. It's elaborated in this week's in the Australian Alert Service. Um, so call in and get a copy if, you, if you'd like. But thanks for tuning in and tune in next week for more of the CEC Report.